Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, a library of sessions recorded at the Rabbit Room's annual conference, which celebrates art, music, story, and faith in all their many intersections. Today, it's our pleasure to share Dr. Russell Moore's session, Why We Need Fiction for Moral Formation, from 2020's Hutchmoot Homebound. Dr. Moore explores the ways in which fiction and story are fundamental and indispensable building blocks in our understanding of the world, ourselves, and God. But before we get to that, you'll hear Andrew Peterson's welcoming Hutchmoot Homebound address, followed by a special performance of his song, Many Roads. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. It is really nice to be here with you guys for Hutchmoot Homebound. Uh, I just wanted to, my name's Andrew Peterson, by the way. I've been part of the Rabbit Room uh, since it started. And um, and I just wanted to share a few thoughts with you before we get going here. So welcome to Hutchmoot Homebound. We were bummed when we uh, had to cancel Hutchmoot this year for a lot of reasons. One of the biggest was that we weren't sure we could pivot to an online conference and still keep the spirit of what Hutchmoot was meant to be. Uh, It was always meant to be about physical presence, which is to say incarnation. The Rabbit Room's ministry was never meant to exist solely online. And in fact, we've always believed that there's no such thing as virtual community, not really. All this internet stuff is great, but if it begins and ends with a computer, then we have failed in our jobs. That is why Hutchmood is so important to the Rabbit Room's work. It's a way to eschew all the technological entrapments that isolate us to literally pull up a chair to a literal table, smile at the people across from us, and to literally taste and see that the Lord is good. So we had misgivings about moving Hutchmoot to an online-only conference. It felt like a move away from what makes Hutchmoot Hutchmoot. But what if we didn't call it just Hutchmoot? What if it was its own thing? And what if we found a way to shape the conference so that it did bring people together? that it did involve real meals, thank you, John Cal, as well as real reasons to go outside, to make something with your hands, to meet people near you? What if it was more than just staring at a screen, but was actually fun too? The Rabbit Room staff's imaginations ran wild, and they labored for months to create this weekend for you. So right off the bat, we want to thank Pete Peterson, Shajay Clark, Chris Thiessen, Leslie Thompson, Drew Miller, Jennifer Trafton, and Kyra Hinton, as well as our friend Rob Wheeler for all of your boundlessly creative work. They have worked so hard, I can't even tell you. There's a shocking amount of content <laughs> for you guys to enjoy this weekend, and none of it would have happened without the staff's artful diligence. So if we could give them a round of applause, I would ask for that now, but just know that that's what, uh, that's what they deserve. So one positive thing that came from moving to an online format is that we no longer had to limit the number of registrants. We can only fit 300 people into the actual Hutchmoot when we do it in person, but this gave us a chance to fling open the doors and allow even more people to experience the weekend. So last I checked, we were well over 3,000 people. I'm not sure what it's at right now, but that is amazing. Um, But the sheer number of people, as well as the lack of eye-to-eye communication, means the potential for miscommunication. To say that 2020 has been tough is an understatement. For me, one of the toughest parts has been the division, ideological division, political division, theological division, even tragically familial division. But I want to point out that every single person who's presenting music, lectures, art, and fun this weekend is a Christian. That means they claim Christ as their Lord and their only hope. 
We all read the same Bible. We all believe the same fundamental truths about the gospel. And yet you may hear things you disagree with. There are people of different nations, tribes, and tongues here this weekend from all over the world, which means different denominations, backgrounds, political leanings, and opinions. And that is a good thing, you guys. It's an incredible opportunity to be humble enough to listen, to learn, to forgive, and to love. So I beg you, don't sow division in the chats. Don't write off someone if they say something you disagree with, however passionately. Celebrate what we have in common. If you're a Christian, then you're a subject in the kingdom of God and a child of the king himself. As our friend Scott Sauls wrote in his book, A Gentle Answer, Jesus has been gentle toward us, so we have good reason to become gentle toward others, including those who treat us like enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of, the, of your father who is in heaven. That was Jesus, not Scott Sauls. Back to Scott Sauls. He said, because Jesus has covered all of our offenses, we can be among the least offensive and least offended people in the world. Amen, Scott Sauls. So let's approach this weekend with humility, which is a sure way to approach it with wonder. Prepare to be moved. Prepare to be encouraged and edified and entertained. I'm so glad you've chosen to hang out with us this weekend. So let it be a bright spot in a dark year. As I say in my concerts, you could have chosen a million other things to do with your time, but here you are. Here we are in one quote unquote place together. Uh, And I always think that that's an amazing thing to pay attention to. And so Pete asked me to play my song, Many Roads, uh, which is kind of about that idea that we all ended up in this one place together, enjoying this one crazy thing together at the same time. And so uh, my prayer is that we would all keep our eyes open to what the Lord has for us this weekend. Here we go. If you'll step inside this great glass elevator, It'll take us up above the city lights To where the planet curves away to the equator I want to show you something fine Well, you can see the roads that we all travel just to get here A million minuscule decisions in a line Why they brought us to this moment isn't clear But that's all right We've got all night Well, could it be that the many roads You took to get here Were just for me to tell this story And for you to hear this song And your many hopes And your many fears Were meant to bring you here All along So if you'll trust me with your time, I'll spend it wisely And I will sing to you with all I have to give Cause if you traveled all this way, then I will do my best to play My biggest hits that don't exist And if you'll lend to me your ear, I'll sing them pretty sing them out of tune And I will not forget the words of any chorus, bridge or verse, I promise you Cause it could be that the many roads you took to get here were just for me to tell this story and for you to 
maybe hear this song in your many hopes and your many fears we're meant to bring you here all along well i've been zooming every day for many weeks now i've been masking up and sanitizing hands and i've been cursing all this covid because i want to do a concert with my band got Hutch Mood now to help us ease the sadness. We've got music, art, and stories on the screen. We've got recipes and riddles, kazoos and cheese and everything between. Yeah. How I love to watch you listen to the music. Cause you sing to me a music of your own As I cast out all these lines So afraid that I will find I am alone, all alone Well could it be that the many roads I took to get here Were just for you to tell me that story And for me to hear your song and my many hopes great to be here at Hutchmoot 2020, finding a way together in the middle of uh, all of the, the darkness and challenge that we have all around the world right now to come together and to, and to share life with one another. You know, there's an issue that can divide a certain sort of Christian immediately and prompt uh, an argument that can go all night long. And I'm not talking about Catholicism versus Protestantism or predestination versus free will or those sorts of arguments. I'm talking about the right order of reading the Chronicles of Narnia. There are uh, lots of box sets of the Chronicles of Narnia that will start with volume one uh, being the magician's nephew. And the argument for that is to say, well, that's the beginning. That's the origin story. And that's sort of the genesis of the series. And that's where one should start. Not with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where, where the, the series started as it was being written. I would argue, though, that that conversation is about something deeper than just the reading order of that particular series. Because the magician's nephew functions not as the origin of the series. It functions more like the old uh, television series Smallville did to the Superman mythos or Gotham to the Batman mythos. You have to have a certain understanding of the storyline in order to see the flashes of it in the prequel uh, to it. So The Magician's Nephew is less like Genesis than it is like Revelation 12 or Ephesians or Hebrews that shining a light backward on the storyline. In order to feel the weight of the story, you have to understand the mysteries as mysteries. 
You have to have a, a sense of not knowing the direction that you're going in the text in order to then turn around and see it uh, from backwards. So where did the white witch come from? Who is this professor really? And, and why does he seem to take these kids seriously when they come in talking about such uh, fantastic things? Uh, and then other things that you don't even notice as mysteries in the first reading through. Uh, is a lamppost just a lamppost? Uh, or uh, does it mean something else? Now, the reason that that's important is because the way that we see this can tell us something about the way that we read the Bible, about the way we read the universe, and about the way that we read our lives. And so in order to have a kind of spiritual and moral formation, we have to understand how stories work. And so if you look at uh, one of the big problems that we have uh, is biblical illiteracy, yes, but not the way that we typically assume it. Uh, I think that when some people say uh, we have a biblically illiterate culture or a biblically illiterate church, sometimes they're referring to people who don't know how to find Habakkuk. Or they're referring to the kind of things that you can see in a mall kiosk with Bible verses taken radically out of, of context. But I think the problem's deeper than that. There's a, a New Testament scholar, uh, David Neinheis, who wrote this uh, book, Concise Guide uh, to Reading the New Testament, who talks about his students being trained to be Bible quoters and not Bible readers. And what he argues is that his students are able to take the text of the Bible and to distill it into uh, arguments, but they're not actually able to read the storyline of the scripture itself. So he says this, they have the capacity to recall a relevant biblical text in support of a particular doctrinal point or in opposition to a hot spot in the culture wars or in hope of emotional support when times get tough, they approach the Bible as a sort of reference book, a collection of useful God quotes that can be looked up as one would locate words in a dictionary or an entry in an encyclopedia. I think this is exactly right. And it's not a contrast between educated people or uneducated people at all. There are many people who know the exact precisions of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, sometimes even more so, who are not able to, to see the big picture of the biblical storyline and how that fits with the storyline of the universe or of their own lives. And what ends up happening is we translate the Bible into abstractions. And they're just different kinds of abstractions depending on what sort of uh, Christian the person is. So there's a kind of really doctrinally rigorous uh, Christian who is translating the Bible into doctrinal abstractions. Uh, another sort of Christian who's translating it into life tips uh, abstractions. And another sort of uh, Christian who would translate uh, Samson being bound to claiming prosperity and, and victory in your life. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I noticed in teaching preaching uh, several years ago that so many of my students didn't know how to preach from the Gospels or from the Psalms without first almost translating those texts into a Pauline epistle in order to preach them point by sub point by sub sub point. 
But that actually not only misreads how the Gospels work and how the Psalms work, it also misreads how the Pauline epistles work. Paul assumes a narrative. He assumes a storyline. And in all of the arguments of Romans and Galatians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and elsewhere, he's taking people into that storyline. So 1 Corinthians 10, for instance, our fathers in the wilderness, that rock was Christ. Or in Romans 9 through 11, talking about the remnant of Elijah. These are just the explicit uh, appeals to the storyline. Elsewhere uh, throughout the Pauline epistles, as Richard Hayes uh, would point out, there are echoes of Scripture uh, that are there for for anyone who understands the biblical storyline. In the same way that someone uh, might say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The people who know that hymn will know what you're talking about. People who don't might not, but the echo is there. So one of the problems I think we have when it comes to moral formation, spiritual formation, is actually a problem of reading. Uh, we, We assume sometimes that what we need is a Christian worldview Uh, which means a choice of abstractions to argue against other abstractions. But I think that that mentality fuels secularism more than any hostility to the Christian faith itself. So in order to figure this out, we have to ask, why are stories important? Why is story important? And it's not because stories are, first of all, illustrative. Stories don't start with the abstraction and then illustrate the abstraction. Most of what a story does is working with you, not even at the level of argument, but unconsciously uh, moving you toward delight or surprise or outrage or revulsion or disgust. It's not that you don't cognitively connect the dots. Uh, Sometimes you do. But the story works at a different level from uh, from simply abstract cognitive argument. Now, that can work in horrible ways. Think of the Germanic Volk myths that, that gave rise to uh, Nazi ideology. Think of the, uh, the workers' paradise myths that gave rise to Soviet terror. It, it can work in, in horrible ways, but it can also work in redemptive ways. So think of, for instance, the prophet Nathan when he's uh, confronting David after the incident with Bathsheba, and he tells the story of the man with the ewe lamb. This is not, the ewe lamb story is not a way to illustrate. So Nathan is not approaching David by saying adultery is wrong, abuse of power is wrong, and, and here's an illustration of that. Instead, What Nathan does is to tell the story in such a way that David is emotionally involved in the story. He has a response to the story that wouldn't have happened if Nathan had simply come and confronted him uh, straight on. Because the way that a human being works is to try to protect the vulnerable parts of the psyche, the vulnerable parts of uh, the conscience. Nathan is not giving to David at that point 
an argument, he is giving to him an experience of taking him into the story so that David identifies with the poor man, with the ewe lamb. He has a sense of outrage that someone would do this to him. Jesus does the same thing. Uh, Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's in uh, an argument, a challenge uh, from the expert in the law. What Jesus does not do is to go through and and trace through Leviticus about responsibility uh, to the vulnerable. Instead, he tells a story that takes this person and takes the reader into the experience of passing by a beaten man on the side of the road takes him into the experience where he has to acknowledge that the Samaritan is the one who is showing mercy. That's how a story works. The abstraction just would not do the same thing. And in the life of of any Christian, spiritual and moral formation is not, uh, first of all, a list of do's and don'ts. It's instead something else. It's not Look at all the positive consequences of doing this sort of thing as opposed to all of the negative consequences of doing that sort of thing. Even when we're dealing with law in Scripture, the Ten Commandments don't come to us as a list of abstractions out of nowhere. The Ten Commandments start with the Exodus. It assumes the Exodus story. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Sermon on the Mount is not a list of abstractions of a good way to live. Instead, it starts with Jesus identifying himself as the year of Jubilee, identifying himself as the fulfillment of the story uh, of Israel, and then talking about what uh, what it's like to live in this kingdom. The epistles do the same thing. So when Paul, for instance, talks in Ephesians chapter 5 about responsibilities of of husbands and wives to one another, he says, as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, washing her with water. All of those things are rooted in a narrative that the hearers would have understood of Jesus washing the feet of Peter, of Jesus setting his face like flint toward Jerusalem. It assumes a plot line. So the Bible does not give to us simply love the stranger, but gives to us love the stranger because you were a stranger in Egypt. You were a wanderer in the desert. Marilyn Robinson uh, talks in uh, one of the, the Gilead books about the distinction between glory, the, the, the woman glory, and Jack. And she says, the girls in the family got named for theological abstractions and the boys got named for human beings. Uh, Timothy Larson at a conference on Robinson at Wheaton says that that line struck me because I once attended a church in which there was a family with three children named Faith, Hope, and Ralph. And uh, why is that the case? Uh, There's a reason why story reaches deeper than abstraction alone. And it's because we use stories to orient our lives, to orient everything about us in terms of a plot line. Even the way that we justify ourselves uh, when 
anybody experiences a romantic breakup, what does that person want to do? Wants to gather with his or her friends and recite the story with everyone saying, yeah, she's crazy. Yeah, he, he doesn't deserve you. Yeah, you're the one who was mistreated here. Well, what is that? That's storytelling. Sometimes the storytelling is right. Sometimes the storytelling is wrong, but it is storytelling. And the reason for that is because the entire universe is built around, John says in John 1, a logos, which is not logic in the way that we think of raw, abstract logic. It's more, as historian Dyer Maid McCulloch puts it, storyline. It's a word, but it's the sort of word that gives significance, that gives voice, that gives a whole act of speech and of conversation and of meaning and of plot, which you can see even in the language that John uses. It's not like the Stoics talking about an abstract logos holding everything together, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There is an entire Old Testament storyline wrapped up in that, uh, in explicit statement and also in echoes. So this matters uh, for people because as the philosopher Alistair McIntyre argues, uh, in order to ask, to answer the question, what should I do? You have to first ask the question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? And that means you have to understand how plot works. And what plot needs is an interplay between intelligibility and mystery, between knowledge and ignorance. So E.M. Forster, in writing about aspects of a novel, says this. He says, let's define a plot. He says, we've defined story as a narrative of events arranged in their time sequence. A plot is also a narrative of events, but the emphasis falls on causality. The king died and then the queen died is a story. The king dies and then the queen died of grief is a plot. The time sequence is there, but the sense of causality overshadows it. Or even better, Forster says, the queen died, no one knew why, until it was discovered that it was through grief at the death of the king. The There's a a plot with mystery in it that then develops. That's the way the Bible works, in the fullness of time. And I think the reason for this interplay between intelligibility and mystery is because of the kind of God that God is. God is not a God who can be discovered through statistical knowledge. Uh, a, A God who could be comprehended in that way would not be the God of 1 Corinthians 1, who is revealed through the cross. He would be a God who could be controlled by human speculation and human uh, wisdom. And it doesn't even resonate with human experience. Uh, We may think that we know a great deal about our lives, but the very beginnings of our lives are in many ways a mystery to us. And the very ends of our lives are in many ways a mystery to us. We make sense of the middle of our lives. We know for certain we're going to die, 
but we don't know what that is going to be like or when that is going to happen. Uh, we know for certain that we are alive, but we don't know all of the uh, relationships and history that led to our birth. And this is the way the Bible works. Uh, in the book of Job, for instance, people misunderstand Job when they assume that at the end of Job, God explains what it is that he is doing in the life of Job. We see the interplay between God and Satan, but even our questions aren't completely answered, much less Job's. Uh, God says to Job at the end, uh, where were you when I? And then, and then goes through all of these uh, aspects of creation. Some people find that uh, unsatisfying. Harold Bloom, the literary critic, uh, for instance, says Job works well as poetry, but it doesn't work well as wisdom literature because uh, he says that the book of Job sacrifices the wisdom for the poetry. Well, Job is not intended to resolve all of those mysteries. What, what God is seeking to evoke from Job is not, now I understand everything that was going on. Nor is God attempting to say to Job, look at how much more powerful I am than you. Instead, what God is seeking to provoke in Job is a sense of awe and wonder. And with that awe and with that wonder and with that affection, Job can start to conform his life and to follow him. There's a statement that goes around a lot in the in sort of current debates, the facts don't care about your feelings. Um, and there's a sense in which, of course, that's true, but there's a larger sense in which it's not true at all. A, a fact without a certain kind of feeling ends up being a fact that is not a fact at all. It, it ends up being something that is not truthful. I recognize that in my own life, uh, not long ago when I was talking to someone, I was interviewing someone who was a pastor. He was talking to me about his experience as a very young child having been brutally sexually abused and being filled with shame at this. And he was talking about coming into his house that night. Uh, his parents didn't know what was going on. No one knew what was going on. He was afraid to tell anybody at church. And he said he went into the kitchen and he got some crackers and some Kool-Aid and had a communion service there. And he said, I really felt as though I met Jesus at that moment, that it was as though Jesus was saying to me, I see you and I'm not ashamed of you. I don't blame you. And I found myself, as he's telling that story, thinking to myself, well, that's not communion. Can't have communion alone. Communion requires community. That's not communion because you have to have the right elements that Jesus has given uh, to us. Now, if we had been sitting and having a theological debate, I probably would have had the better argument. But the very fact that I was focusing on that meant that I actually did not understand the story that he was telling me at all. He was not making an abstract point about whether or not communion can happen alone. He was not making an abstract point about what the proper elements of the Lord's Supper are. He was telling me what it was like 
to be an abused, shame-filled, blamed young man thinking that Jesus had abandoned him. And because I couldn't in that moment understand the feeling behind this, I couldn't understand the experience behind this, I didn't understand the story. I didn't understand the point. That's the way that the storyline of a life works. That's the way that a storyline of the Bible works. So a kind of hyper-rationality and a kind of hyper-abstraction isn't just deficient in terms of persuasion. It doesn't give you a right sense of what's going on. It's not, in the end, even reasonable. So it's the difference between what Walker Percy talks about as receiving news and, uh, and hearing information. If you're a castaway on an island, <clears throat> you may know information about the island ecosystem. That is very different from receiving a message in the bottle that says to you there's an outside world. Those are two completely different experiences. And that's what the biblical storyline does. Uh, it evokes something in either direction in the opening chapters uh, of the New Testament, in the, of the Gospels, for instance. Uh, you have fear taking place in Herod, in the shepherds, and they evoke two completely different reactions. Herod is fearful of a potential rival to the throne, and he is troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The shepherds are filled with fear. The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid, as the King James uh, puts it. And then the fear has to take place and then be resolved. Do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be for all peoples. That, that's part of the storyline. My wife, Maria, knows that one of the things that can drive me to uh, distraction and irritation is if I hear the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings, with uh, Ebenezer taken out. The, the lyric in the hymn, Here I raise by Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. I find that when I'm speaking in churches, usually Ebenezer is changed to something else. And that makes sense. I understand why. Because people are saying nobody knows what Ebenezer is. People, uh, if they know the word Ebenezer, they simply know it in terms of Ebenezer Scrooge. And so it makes sense to sort of change it. But that really reveals something more about our understanding of how we bring people into the story. You don't have to understand the full significance and meaning of Ebenezer in order to be brought into a storyline where you're starting to uh, ask the questions, who are my people? What is our story? Instead, what the gospel does is what Jesus does with Nathaniel, for instance, speaks to him truthful information about his life. I saw you under the fig tree but then says, come and see, come and, come and follow, come and see what it is that I'm talking about. And the response is to be 
Who is this? Well, stories work in that way. I had someone say to me uh, several years ago, why should I read fiction when I can easily just read plot summaries on Wikipedia? And I couldn't believe that I was having this conversation until I started to realize this was someone in the tech industry who was just being especially honest with me, but the the mentality behind it is one that is very common. You can get the point, and you can get the point very quickly. Sometimes people even approach the Bible that way, and they approach their own lives that way. But my fellow Mississippian, Eudora Welty, uh, wrote uh, several years ago, a plot is a thousand times more unsettling than an argument. And she says, why? She says, great fiction shows us not how to conduct our behavior, but how to feel. And eventually, it may show us how to face our feelings and face our actions and to have new inklings about what they mean. There's a difference between my grandmother saying to me, husbands and wives should love each other and be faithful to each other from her telling me about what it was like to be in the room with my grandfather the day that he died and the fact that his feet were cold and that she had to uh, massage his feet and put socks on his feet, that the imagery of those cold feet, uh, the imagery of a wife who has lived through a depression and a world war and uh, every other imaginable situation with this person, that is more unsettling in a way that can break through uh, as I start to imagine my own story with all of the pressures and the bills and the kids and the house repairs to see a different vision of marriage. Tolstoy, writing about the death of Ivan Ilyich, is different than simply someone saying, life is short, pay attention. Uh, You're imaginatively experiencing this. Reading Wendell Berry talking about uh, the experience of losing a farm uh, is different than reading an essay about why an agrarian economy is good. These are different things. So as Frederick Buechner talked about, wrote about, with Jesus's parables. If we think the purpose of Jesus's stories is essentially to make a point as extractable as the moral at the end of a fable, then the inevitable conclusion is that once you get the point, you can throw the story away like the rind of an orange when you've squeezed out the juice. But is that true? How about other people's stories? What is the point of A Midsummer Night's Dream? or the Iliad, or for whom the bell tolls? Can we extract the point in each case and frame it on the living room wall for our perpetual edification? Or is the story itself the point and truth of the story? There is a difference between, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, and there was a man who had two sons. And the two are dependent upon one another. But the the story of there was a man that had two sons relies upon the shock of someone who would say to his father, give me my inheritance now. On the horror of being left alone in a pig pen in a time of famine. 
in the anticipation of whether or not a father is going to receive one back as a hired servant or as a son. Stories uh, and fictional stories uh, aren't primarily to create empathy in a way that can be measured in a, in a laboratory. It's to train the mind and the conscience how to read a plot line in a universe that is a plot line and in individual lives that have plot lines. That has everything to do with a Christian understanding of judgment. Judgment Day is in Scripture not first and foremost about these are the right people and these are the wrong people, as much as it is about a narrative coherence to a life. When uh, Matthew 25, the difference between the sheep and the goats, is both of them are mistaken about the plot lines in their lives and what's important. The, the sheep say, when did we see you naked? When did we find you hungry? And the goats say the same thing. They, they, they did not see how looking backward, these seemingly insignificant acts actually had great significance. Uh, the rich man and the story of the rich man and Lazarus probably had no understanding of Lazarus as even a bit player in the plot line of his life, except in the light of judgment. Well, how do we change? How do we form? Most people don't change by being argued down into submission. Most people don't change because they're exhausted uh, from, from fighting with someone. As a matter of fact, that usually leads to cynicism or to rage. Instead, the way that people change is by imagining a different reality and asking the question, could I find myself in that reality? Uh, Most people don't change at the end of uh, a 20-minute session. Instead, they ponder things. They think about things. Stories, whether fictional stories or seeing and understanding plot lines uh, in the universe and in our lives, help us and train us to do that, not primarily at the level of intellect, but at the level of forming what it is to, to know what one is missing, to have a sense of longing, what C.S. Lewis would call joy. So at the end of Surprised by Joy, he says this, when we're lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who first sees it cries, look, and the whole party gathers around and stares. But when we have found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. Sometimes, though, the signpost is a lamppost, and sometimes a lamppost is not just a lamppost, but requires another story shining backward on it to show us the significance of something we missed and to take us further up and further in. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.
If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmood is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmood is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered.